Two and a Half Admins, episode 129. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your Clara plug this time is a live webinar. So yeah, we have a live webinar coming up February 23rd, deploying a successful performance audit. And we'll talk about, with some other members of my ZFS team, about what we've learned about doing performance audits on other people's pools. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. A high school in Massachusetts has been unable to turn their lights off since 2021 because they are all smart lights and they're broken. Well, I would argue with the smart part. (laughs) And I think the part I found most concerning is, we've been doing everything we can to fix this. It's like, you can't flip a breaker? Yeah, but what else is on with the lights? You know, maybe this crucial stuff. Well, they probably shouldn't be, but no matter how smart your lights are, maybe you should still have a light switch. I think it's fair to say that they have not, in fact, been doing all they can do because it's not that bloody hard in one building to deal with that problem. Is it as annoying? Yes. Is it not something you budgeted for that year? Yes. Is it something to make you incandescently angry? Absolutely. But if you can't figure out how to cut the power to a light bulb, you probably shouldn't be responsible for the facilities of a public school. (laughs) Okay, so they have some more details here. <laughs> the school switched to a green lighting system involving 7,000 lights that were installed over a decade ago. And apparently the software that runs them blew up August 24th of 2021. Nothing says green lighting like 24-7 lighting on a facility that's only open about eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah, and not at all during the summer. So really interesting is what's so special about the software. And it failing at a specific date, especially a decade, Is there a self-signed SSL certificate that expired Mm. (laughs) exactly 10 years after it was installed? That is an interesting insight. You know, my thought was just like, really, we just need to, uh, we need to throw Alex in a duffel bag and, you know, mail him to those folks. I'm sure he could get them sorted out. (laughs) But of course, being the non-technical view, teachers have adjusted by unscrewing some light bulbs at the end of the day or throwing circuit breakers for non-vital parts of the school. (sighs) Dimming the lights to show movies and sometimes projectors on the whiteboard has been very difficult. The lights are on at full brightness at all time. You'd think, though, that, yeah, a competent electrician should be able to go in there and just break the circuit with a switch. Well, it sounds like they've been doing that or just unscrewing the light bulbs. The problem is, you know, they need a way to turn them back on. No, but that's what I mean. Like, a competent electrician would find a way to have a switch that will break the circuit. You know, that's what a switch is is a breaker of sorts, yeah. a functional switch rather than you know something that's for isolation. And maybe the problem here is that they are searching for a technological solution, like an IT solution, a sysadmin solution, to something that just needs a much more basic solution. Oh, no, 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 no Joe. No. You're describing a software developer solution. The sysadmin solution is absolutely rig up a light switch. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Or let's be clear here. I mean, when we talk about teachers are literally able to unscrew the bulbs, that means that we're still talking about the standard A12 socket infrastructure. Mm. There's nothing stopping the school from having just replaced the damn things with new and certainly far less expensive, quote, smart, unquote, light bulbs than the ones they put in a decade ago. I'm guessing based on that, that it might also be that they're smart light sockets, not like, and they're using like plain light bulbs. Yeah, but again, if they're stuck to the on position, then stick some Wi-Fi or Bluetooth enabled bulbs in there. Well, you'd have to have 7,000 of them and however many you have to replace. But yeah, you know, it also does raise questions about how green is that system if it's 10 years old now. Also, 
it gets right to the kind of the stuff we've been talking about with e-waste and just long-term support for any kind of smart anything is that, you know, they had this installed by a contractor 10 years ago. The company has changed hands several times and now owned by some other company who probably doesn't, you know, they don't make or support this old proprietary software anymore. So, you know, fixing the system means replacing all the light sockets in the building or whatever, when it's entirely possible the problem is just an expired SSL certificate or something terrible like that. This still just reeks to me of we've tried absolutely nothing and it's not working. Yeah. I mean, if teachers can literally get up there and unscrew bulbs, I have a lot of difficulty believing that it's not either A12 sockets or like the old school bar fluorescent lighting. Mm -hmm. There's so many potential options there. Bring in an electrician, get these things on a circuit where you can just install light switches, replace bulbs with different smart bulbs, whatever. They got a 10 year run out of it. It's not ideal, obviously, but it's not horrible, especially for like a smart setup. I mean, you want to get more than a decade out of your system. I don't know that a smart thing is really going to be the way to go because they don't last that long. Any tech after 10 years, even if it still works, you're probably going to want something better. And it does seem like the answer in this case is they should have got smart light switches so that you can still physically toggle the lights on and off in the room, but a central unit can turn all the lights off at nighttime and you don't need every light socket or every light bulb to be smart. Yeah. Just the switches. <laughs> and then you're not talking about 7,000 separate IT devices that are terrible. Hopefully you only have one or two per room. Well, I'm going to go ahead and crap on the state of uh, American public schooling here and note that you know clearly they didn't have any kind of switches in the room, smart or otherwise, since teachers are having to do things like unscrew bulbs. And I suspect that probably appealed when they selected the system. And my experience with American public education systems, they tend to be very authoritarian and they love the idea of central control of absolutely everything as much as possible. They probably really loved the idea of just, you know, like, we are the arbiters of the lighting. I mean, I'm sure they didn't think it through to that degree. Well, especially like in that case, it sounds like they didn't think through what if they need to dim the lights to use the overhead projector or to watch a, a movie. If I have to call someone and ask them to turn the lights down instead of being able to sw flip a switch in the room I'm in, then it's a bad system. It's entirely possible that teachers might have had like an app for that or something, but but all that then goes out the window. If you're thinking one of these systems and you're thinking we're going to have to have this for 10 years, what are the chances the app is still going to work? The company's either not going to update the app and it's only going to work on old phones, or they're going to have a newer app for their newer hardware and it's not going to work for your old crap. Or it's a web app that requires IE7 or something. And ActiveX. Oh, man, I have so many clients with HVAC controllers that require Java in the browser. And realistically, the only way to access the things is to dig up literally a Windows XP laptop at this point. <laughs> I had uh, my car mechanic, the Ford dealership. It's like our, our tire alignment machine only works on Windows 98. Do you have a computer old enough that it'll run Windows 98? It's like, yeah, here. And they're like, okay, we'll align your tires for free. Thank you. Forever. <laughs> yeah, forever for free because we needed a computer old enough that it can still run Windows 98 so that it can run our tire alignment machine so we don't have to spend 80 grand on a new one. The worst I ever saw was an ocean-going dredge that was running on Windows 95 OSR2 on a beige box from the 90s. This was in like 2013, I think. 
And uh, I, I saw that thing. They, they gave me a tour of the dredge because I, I was working with uh, another firm involved in the same project. And as a courtesy, they kind of gave me a tour. And I saw all the spaces. When I came up to the bridge, I saw the beige box. And I was like, what's the story with that? And they told me that was the controller for the whole thing. And I took a closer look. And I'm like, that's Windows 95P on that thing. And they're like, yeah, it's really old. And, you know, I'm thinking about the fact that, like, you literally can't get Windows 95 to run for more than, I think it was like, uh, was it like 38 days, I think, because then a timer overflows and the whole thing crashes if you manage to keep it running that long. But it didn't want to go into all that with a bunch of people who clearly wouldn't have cared about that level of technical detail. But I asked, so how often does that thing crash? And like, uh, about twice a day, typically. <laughs> As, how much time do you lose when it crashes? And I'm like, yeah. About half an hour. And I know what they bill for an hour on that dredge. I mean, you know, we're we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars lost every time that thing crashed. But whole dredge on Windows 95 OSR2 crashing twice a day. What about newer hardware in a VM? Can we make that work? But no, it needs, you know, it has to work over a parallel port. Oof. Or some nonsense. I've seen that happen more times than I can count on, you know, like quarter of a million dollar brake presses and other, you know, industrial equipment and machine shops and whatnot. But seeing that on a dredge <laughs> that, that bills millions in a week, whoa, that, that one got me. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks, like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit, and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Google has started enabling case randomization in DNS. Yeah, so if you watch on the wire the dns queries that go out or might be coming into your authoritative server might look like they're written by a troll or something where like every second letter is uppercase or it's very randomized which letters are uppercase but they're doing this as a defense against the cache poisoning attack so because dns has existed for a very long time and without something like dnssec the fact that udp is a stateless protocol means that the requester will send a request to the server saying hey i'd like to look up you know google.com and it sends this from a random port number that it selected, which it used to not be as random, but anyway, it picks a random port number and sends a request to the DNS server saying, hey, what IP address is Google? And then Google will send a reply back to that specific port. And that's how the DNS server knows which reply is for which question. And so this means with a cache poisoning attack that someone in the middle there, snooping on the wire, would be able to just keep flooding all the different ports with the wrong answer for Google. And if they happen to hit the right port number before Google replies, then the DNS server will accept the answer that's from the, the bogus person. 
Okay, I want to jump in for a second here because you don't actually need to be a man in the middle for this because DNS's UDP stateless protocol. You can be off to the side. There's no verification of where something came from. So you can just flood your target server with a ton of requests that claim to be from Google or, or from wherever, you know, answering the DNS requests that you just sent to that same server. So the same person requests from that server, tell me where Google.com is. And that server, for the purposes of this tag, needs to not already have a cached answer. So it goes to look at its next step up to see, okay, where is Google.com? But you know where it's going to go to try to resolve that. So you flood it with bogus responses that claim to be from the server you know it's going to be asking for an answer from. And because this is UDP and not stateless, it has no way of knowing that you aren't the server it actually asked to begin with. So if you get your response on the correct port, typically the server is going to use a dynamic source port that will need to get replied on. So that adds to some complexity as well. But if you get your response in before the proper authoritative one does, it will just take it because it has no way of knowing you're not that the right person to be answering that. So by doing this random Case shuffling. Case shuffling. That's a great, concise term for it. By doing case shuffling, what you're doing is adding, in addition to not knowing for certain what the source port is going to be that you're going to have to reply to, you also don't know what the capitalization is going to be. So if it asks for capital G-O-O, capital G-L-E.com, but you give a response for all lowercase Google.com or for all uppercase Google.com or any other combination of case, the answer isn't going to match the request, so the DNS server can drop that because it's bogus and it doesn't match what it's looking for. Yeah, and so it provides an extra whole combination of things that the attacker would have to use to try to, to spoof your DNS server and give it the wrong answer. Now, if this reminds you of all of the uh, very old, like, 1990s password generation advice of substitute numbers for letters and, and you know, <laughs> random capitalization there, but uh, you still got, like, one simple word, and it also reminds you of all the advice from the 2000s later that that was terrible and we never should have told you to do that and it's not real security, you would be correct. But it is adding more complexity and presumably slowing them down a little bit, at least. In the same way that, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a sucking chest wound is helping, yes. Right, but if we're looking at just the port number as the only thing they have to guess, there's only 65,535 possible combinations, and there's a bunch of those that probably aren't in the range that's used. Whereas every bit that we add of just is the first letter capital or not, is the second letter capital or not, each bit we add doubles the complexity, and so it very quickly gets to be much harder for the attacker. They also... Set an extra bit in the DNS request called bit 0x20, which is uh, improved transaction identity to basically tell the other server that this is what's going on, partly because some DNS servers in the past would purposely all lowercase the answer. So their cache wouldn't have every different capitalization in it because they actually <laughs> were trying to save memory by normalizing all the requests so that your request for Google with a capital G and Jim's request for one without the capital G would both hit the same hash bucket in their in their cache. But now we need a way to disable that optimization because we need to protect from the attacker. Yeah, I really wasn't being fair when I said a Band-Aid on a sucking chest wound, but uh, a Band-Aid is a response to a, a missing big toe is about right. <laughs> yeah, that's probably correct. We have other solutions like DNS over TLS and, and DNSSEC to kind of ensure stuff, but there's downsides to all of those as well. And this one basically has the advantage that it can be implemented 
mostly at the recursive name server level and the authoritative name server level and not depend on something on the client making the original requests. It doesn't have to be something that every phone needs to know how to do, just that the public resolvers and the authoritative DNS servers know how to do. The other one I, that I'm not sure, actually sure about is how specific DNS servers are about the IP address that's giving the reply. I know when you query 8.8.8.8, that's any cast, and that's going to lots of different servers. And if you end up trying to do TCP to them or something, they will actually reply from their regular IP address which is not 8.8.8.8. And so I wonder if the DNS responses from there go from that or if they spoof them because it's UDP and it doesn't matter that the the reply you actually get comes from 8.8.8.8. I've not sniffed my DNS traffic in a while. Yeah, I'm not sure if they check or not, but it, it doesn't matter really if they do or not. Because the attacker can lie. Nobody's doing egress validation on UDP packets that leave their network which means that wherever you're from, you can claim your packets came from anywhere else and, and they'll just, it'll egress out of your network and, you know, just fine. Nobody's going to validate, no, that shouldn't leave my network because that clearly didn't come from my network. And they're just going to let it go. And the same is true for TCP. The, the difference is when I get a request from Jim on TCP, I send a reply to the address he's pretending to be. They get it and they're like, I didn't ask for that and drop it on the floor and the connection never goes anywhere. But, you know, it's not something special to UDP. It's just that in UDP, there's not the three-way handshake to confirm that the other side is actually on path with what they claim to be. And even that wasn't enough. And that's why we invented TLS to be able to prove, you know, is that computer actually have the secret key that they claim to have that is actually, you know, eBay and not a scammer. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Anchor finally comes clean about its Eufy security cameras. A bit of a follow-up from something we talked about towards the end of last year. Yeah, the short version is a whole lot of people were buying these Eufy security cameras because unlike most of their competition, Eufy not only offered local storage, but seemed to prioritize it and have security and privacy as specific focuses. They promised your video will always be encrypted. You can store it locally or you can do a cloud storage, but, you know, always end-to-end encrypted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until some researchers discovered, well, that's not necessarily the case because we started playing around on, you know, this uh, web accessible. It was uh, it was HTTP serve, wasn't it, Alan? I think so, yeah. Or RTSP. At any rate, they... they they got on publicly accessible portions of Eufy's cloud and discovered that, oh, hey, you know, there are streams here that we can just play directly in VLC, no decryption required. And Eufy has finally responded to that 
And it's a mix of good and bad. We we got some technical explanation being that this was sort of an add-on feature that came about after the fact. And, you know, was if you accessed your video through the web portal and a whole bunch of weaseling. But really, it boils down to we broke our own policies that we promised you were our policies, and we're trying to find a way to look better out of it and somehow seem like the victim at the same time? I, I, I don't know. Most of the technical meat of the response letter was pretty good, but I didn't love the tone. I rarely do with corporate, quote, apologies, unquote, and this one was no exception. Yeah, I also have some technical questions remaining. Like they say that now every single Eufy camera uses WebRTC, which is encrypted by default. But my understanding is that just means it uses HTTPS as the transport. And so while that's encrypted, if it will let me access it without a decryption key, per se, it, sure, it's protected, but it's, is it actually locked down? Yeah, it's encrypted. Here's the key so you can decrypt it. Yeah, or, you know, it will negotiate a different key with every person that wants to connect so that each of them can get it securely. Yeah, but it's encrypted in transit, and that's all that counts. It's clearly not. Right, except for if you'll transit it to anybody, then no, that doesn't help with my security camera footage. <laughs> to be fair, Joe was trolling us there. Also, to be fair, clearly it worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it comes down to the same thing we said when we first covered this topic, which was security and privacy from the gadget that you bought off the internet. It's, it's always going to be a bit of a dog's breakfast. If you don't want your crap to be exposed on the internet, you need to take steps to make sure that it isn't exposed on the internet in the first place. You can't just trust that, oh, well, company told me that all my stuff is secure and they can't access it and nobody else can access it. You can't just blindly accept that. You just can't. I, I don't know if you ever will. Let's do some feedback then. Mark writes, I wish you spoke more about your intentions or lack thereof with Mastodon. I see Joe is posting episodes there. I see Alan has an account. I guess time will tell. Well, they'll prize Twitter from your cold, dead hands, Jim, right? I don't think that's an accurate description. I don't want to jump ship without someplace equally valid and with this larger community to reach out to. And Mastodon is not currently that. I don't know that it ever will be. And also, to be honest, I mean... Twitter is partly directly useful for me now. It is also, quite frankly, a war zone, and I'm not ready to bug out. It seems like a slightly odd question. What do you care which social network I use? But I think the analogy I, I gave to Joe the other day is right now, Macedon still feels too much like GPG. It makes sense if you're into that kind of thing, but it's not going to hit the level of mainstream that will make it useful. And while I want a federated system and I, don't like the walled gardens that we've ended up with, with Facebook and Twitter and so on. I'm kind of waiting to see what the replacement is going to be before I jump ship. It's going to take a lot of effort to, to move all the stuff that I've spent the last 10 plus years on Twitter doing and make sure I'm actually still seeing the content I wanted to see from people. Like so far, a bunch of the people that I do want to follow aren't on a Mastodon yet or when I tried to use Mastodon, it's like, oh, I can look at Joe's list of followers and try to start building up my own list, except for I can only see the ones that are in the same instance as me unless I click on a thing and then do another thing. And it just like suddenly I'm like, ah, I get why regular people look at you funny when you tell them about GPG. I'm like, OK. Yeah, I, I don't have the personal bandwidth to just willy nilly add another social network that now I need to keep up with that one as well. Like if I add another one, one has to go 
And I haven't seen another network yet that is going to offer me enough to get me to move. I can't just add another one. It seems like it's getting worse and worse. Like everywhere you go, people want you to, to, you know, add another thing that you have to keep on top of. Oh, join my Slack channels. And, you know, we want you to have, you know, our email account to send you an email on our domain rather than using your email address. And we use IRC and we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. And I just, I can't stomach another freaking platform. I don't have time for it. There's this syndrome called digital patrolling that you can get into where you have enough things to keep track of that by the time you've checked the last one, there's something new on the first one and you get locked into this really unfulfilling cycle where you just keep running this digital patrol looking for the new thing to show up. And I'm already having problems with that. I can't make it worse. Well, it again reminds me of like the late 90s and early 2000s in some ways. Like at one point it was just there's IRC and that's the thing. And, you know, there's a couple of networks, but we managed that. And then it was like, oh, well, now there's like ICQ and MSN and AIM and all these messenger apps. And so then I had to get this nice open source software, Pigeon or whatever, and and I'm on all of them at once and I can kind of bring it into one place and deal with it, but it's still annoying. And then those all kind of went away and we've got back to having kind of one thing. And then now we're going to the, it's like, I think the federated model is good. At one point when it was the like XMPP and I was on Google's Messenger thing and the Facebook one and the one for the video game I played and all that as one app, it worked for me. But whatever Mastodon is or, or will become isn't quite there yet. Especially if it gets to the point where I'm going to have to host my own instance to control things the way I want. I like that's a lot of commitment for what is supposed to be very short interactions with people. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. You know the old saying, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? The traditional approach to device security is that hammer, a blunt instrument that can't solve nuanced problems. Even after installing clunky agents that uses hate, IT teams still have to deal with mountains of support tickets over the same old issues, and they have no way to address things like unencrypted SSH keys, OS updates, or pretty much anything that goes on with a Linux device. Collide is an endpoint security solution that's more like a Swiss Army knife. It gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices, Mac, Windows, and even Linux. You can query your entire fleet to check for common compliance issues or write your own custom checks. Plus, instead of installing intrusive software that creates more work for IT, Collide's lightweight agent shows end users how to fix issues themselves. You can achieve endpoint compliance by adding a new tool to your toolbox. Visit collide.com 25A to find out how. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash two five A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Hovard writes, Jim stated that setting up a new server is a 10-minute job. That is not the case for me. I would love to see instructions for how to do that. Are you able to share? Absolutely, but I don't know if it'll make you much happier. The answer is that my servers on the bare metal do very little. They basically just exist as a platform to host VMs on, and all the interesting things that do take longer than that to configure happen inside the virtual machines. So setting up a new server for me is literally just running through an Ubuntu server install, 
right off of a USB drive like a caveman, no automation or anything, just bash through the install, apt install. There's about 12 packages total needed to run, uh, you know, KVM hosting and, you know, the, the support packages for Sanoid. And I'm done at that point. If I already have VM images, then I'm just replicating them onto that server and verse defining them and then they boot and we're off to the races. If I don't already have VM images, well, then that's the part that will take more time because, yeah, if you're setting up like a company's everything server that's doing, you know, it's web service and you've got to set up web platforms on it and you got to do, I don't know, email, IRC, you know, whatever, like all the stuff that you really need to back up. Yeah, that's going to take a lot more time. And that's why I make sure to put that stuff inside VMs that I can very easily just back up as an image and drop onto any arbitrary KVM host and expect them to work. Yours is even easier, Alan, because you just replicate the root. Yeah, the old way was just run the FreeBSD installer and I can do that with my eyes closed because I've done it so many times and, and worked on the installer itself. But yeah, the newer version of that is we build our own boot-only ISO that just asks a couple of questions from a shell script with just the read prompt of what's the host name, what's my IP addresses, and which disks should I reformat? You tell it that, it creates a new empty Z pool, and then it does like curl pipe ZFS receive from our deployment server, grabs a ZFS image, splats it on the disk, and now that server is identical to every one of our other servers, and it boots up. And then the automation system says, okay, what jails or VM should I be running? And grabs those and builds them and starts using images of, you know, here's the either the container workloads or the VM workloads I'm supposed to have, get them and go. And so, yeah, we got it down to super easy like that. And when you have hundreds of them, it makes it much better. And we even do our updates that way. Rather than using the built-in OS updating mechanism or even updating packages, we just receive a new ZFS boot environment that has all the new packages already installed. So it takes however long it takes to download a couple hundred megabytes of data and write it to the disk, and then we reboot and it's on the new one. And that boot is temporary uh, using a, a flag in ZFS called boot once. So we boot the new one. If it works and stays up for 10 minutes, then we make that permanent and that's the server now. If it doesn't, the machine power cycles itself, goes back to the old version, and somebody has to manually figure out why the upgrade didn't work. Do you do that read-only then? Is it like proper immutable or is it just immutable style? No, it's not immutable just for convenience. It's just if any files outside of slash CFG and certain database directories don't persist across the upgrades, and we just always go to the stock files again. It's not immutable. It's just ephemeral. Everything is subject to being blown completely away at the whims of, of the sysadmin. The data will still be there. It just won't be in the newer version of the operating system. And I can go and copy it out if, if it turns out we forgot to persist some file that we did want or something. Moving back to the original topic of just automated installations, I did for about a year, I ran a Pixie Boot installation environment to crank out new servers. And for me, it just, it, it wasn't worth the maintenance. Doing the Pixie Boot installer environment, I really wasn't able to shave any time off of the process. I think it actually took slightly longer, but I could get less attended time by having scripts, you know, answer silly questions for me and set things up. But I have enough variability in how the hardware needs to get configured and deployed on my servers. And they go to different organizations enough that it just, it ended up not being worth the maintenance. The second time I needed to do significant maintenance to specifically the Pixie Boot installation side of it, I came to the conclusion this isn't saving me enough time to be worth another thing that I have to keep track of. And I went back to my old method of just bashing my way through the USB install because it's plenty quick enough 
for the scale I'm operating at. If all of my clients were like under one roof and, you know, in one organization that I also work from, I probably would be more heavily automated than I am, but it's just not worth it with the combination of scale and geographic and organizational distribution that I work with. It's like people ask me, you know, about, you know, are you using Puppet or using Chef or using Ansible, whatever. And for the most part, I'm not using any of those. And for the same reasons, particularly when you're working with multiple client organizations that aren't actually related to one another in any other way than, you know, being clients of yours, you really kind of don't want to set up an automation system that makes it possible for you to screw up more than one client at once, because you don't ever want to have to explain to client A, well, your systems are completely screwed up because of something I did trying to fix client B. That's a good way to get permafired. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me on Twitter, at least for now, at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.